Good morning. Good morning. And Merry Christmas. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for what the season means, that you left heaven and all the glories there and became part of this race in order to bring us salvation. We are so thankful for what you've done. We ask that we can come to know you more fully and effectively and be efficient in taking the truth about who you are and your kingdom to this world, that we can see you in eternity soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 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 We're starting a new quarter today, which is the Psalms. And the title of the first lesson is How to Read the Psalms. And the last paragraph in the Sabbath lesson says the following. The Psalms have been written in Hebrew poetry by different authors from ancient Israel, and so the Psalms reflect their particular world, however universal their message is. Accepting the Psalms as God's word and paying close attention to the Psalms' poetic features, as well as their historical, theological, and liturgical contexts, is fundamental for understanding their messages, which reach across thousands of years to our time. And what this is telling us is that the key, or the, the essential, let me, ask you, let me ask it to you this way. When we read scripture, what is the most important aspect? The words that are recorded there or the meaning that is conveyed by the words? That's what they're saying. You have to, in order to understand the meaning, there's multiple things to understand about the time, the place, the culture, uh, in order to actually come away with the meaning. So when translators translate, there are problems often in translation in bringing the meaning across. And there are, and I'm going to go through several of those obstacles really quick. First is there is no word-to-word translation. And anybody here bilingual? If you translate, you'll know there is no such thing as a word for a variety of reasons. Sometimes in the culture or in the languages, there are words that the other languages don't even possess. Sometimes, though, if the word is there, in essentially every word that we have, each word, if you look it up in the dictionary, will, will typically have multiple meanings. Each word, if you look in the dictionary, has multiple meanings. And so the old word has multiple meanings, and the new language word has multiple meanings, and the translator has to decide which meaning of the multiples of this word parallels best with the new word multiple meanings, and that is a layer of potential confusion. And then when we translate, there are idioms, ideas, references from one culture that may not exactly correlate to the new culture. For instance, if you were going to translate from modern English, let's do it reverse, we're translating out of ancient Hebrew for the Psalms into modern English, but if you were to translate from modern English into ancient Hebrew, the following sentences, following sentence, if you don't know the answer, just Google it. (laughs) How would you translate that into ancient Hebrew? Or how about this one into ancient Hebrew? We will not work on President's Day. Translate that into ancient Hebrew. If you say we won't work on King's Day or the King's birthday, are you introducing the idea that we live in an aristocracy, in a monarchy? Do you see the problems with translation? Cultural uh, understanding needs to take place. How about, not even going back to ancient Hebrew, if you just... Maybe your grandson gets a letter from your grandfather at ni- at, at, that was written around 1900. And, and the letter says, hey, I just want you to know, uh, me and my buddies are over here in, in London having a gay time. <laughs> would, would your grandson today immediately understand the meaning of that? No, he would misunderstand it. <laughs> he might misunderstand that. And this is part of the cultural context and understanding when we translate. Further complicating translation is the use of metaphors, symbols, allegories, parables, which can be misconstrued. And in the Psalms, we have the added complexity of of poetry with poetic license on words. And then finally, we always have the biases and assumptions and presuppositions of the translators themselves. Am I giving you confidence in the translations? (laughs) So I thought it might be helpful uh, to just share with you the preface to the Remedy Psalms, because you all know I paraphrase the Psalms, and we're going to just go through that preface together. In 2016, the Remedy New Testament Expanded Paraphrase was released 
In the preface of that volume, I documented the process of Christian thought being infected with the idea that God governs like Caesar, imposing rules enforced by punishment. The traditional view has been that God's law functions the same way as imposed human laws, which would require God to punish the perpetrator for breaking his rules. Rather than recognizing God's laws as design laws, the protocols upon which the creator built reality to operate. This view has led to the penal legal theological constructs of Christianity giving birth to the notion of a punishing God requiring legal appeasement. When translators, despite all innocence of motive, approach the text with this worldview in mind, they all too often bring the le- this legal distortion of a punishing God into the translation. Additionally, a single Hebrew word can be translated into multiple various English terms, frequently over 100. If you look in the lexicons, this English word is, has been translated into 100 different words in the, in the uh, English Bible. Leaving the decision as to which is the most suitable one to the translator's discretion, this practice opens itself up to the biases of the translator. When paraphrasing the Psalms, I have discovered that the Hebrew language is much more susceptible to the biases of the translator than the Greek. This is because the Hebrew is much more removed from our modern language, and there are many words in the ancient text that scholars have little or no understanding of. Repeatedly, the lexicons note Hebrew unknown, Hebrew not clear, yet they translate it. What does that mean? They're guessing. They're hoping. They're wishing. They're doing their best. I don't think they're intentionally trying to put something in there, but I'll show you some examples in a moment of how this what happens. Please understand that that I believe that the various standard Bible translations are done by good-hearted people giving their honest best to deliver the most accurate translation possible. Unfortunately, they are still subject to their own biases, preconceived ideas, and premises, just as I am. My premise is that God is the creator, operating upon the principles of his grand law of love and expressing his love to all his creation by establishing and putting into practice natural design laws upon which reality is constructed to operate. Because of Adam's choice, humankind is out of harmony with God's design and is therefore in a terminal state, dead in trespass and sin. Nevertheless, God through Christ has been working to heal and restore all who trust him back into unity with him, back into harmony with his design laws, his original design for human life. Finally, in the Psalms, poetic license is taken by the original author. Many Hebrew words are used poetically, symbolically, and metaphorically, thus adding another layer of interpretive license. Consequently, the Psalms, even among non-controversial translations, there are wide differences in translation. Here's a couple of examples. Psalms 29.9 out of the Good News Bible. The Lord's voice shakes the oaks and strips the leaves from the trees while everyone in his temple shouts glory to God. And from the English Standard Version, same verse. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. In his temple, all cry glory. Do they really say exactly the same thing? No. No, No, these are two standard accepted versions, but the Hebrew is so poorly understood that it gives wide range to how it's uh, interpreted. And then I'm going to read from you Psalms 32, 3, and 4, and we're going to do the good news, the English standard, the King James, and the remedy. And see, and the goal here as we go through this in just a second, is at the end, I want you to decide, as you hear these four versions of these two verses, which do you think is bringing the meaning across most accurately? Which is the most accurate meaning? So the good news of Psalms 32, 3, and 4. When I did not confess my sins, I was worn out from crying all day long. Day and night, you punished me, Lord. My strength was completely drained as moisture is dried up from the summer heat. Think about what message you get. English Standard, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. Now, the King James, which which is next, which some people really think is the creme de la creme, the the one you should go to. Watch, Watch how difficult this is because this English is so old, it's actually very difficult to understand. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer. That's more difficult to understand, isn't it? And then see what you think about the remedy. When I held on to my guilt and shame, refusing to talk to God, I stressed myself and my body decayed because every day I screamed no, denying the truth. 
But day and night your healing hand pressed firmly upon me. My resistance evaporated like water in the summer heat. Amen. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot different. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, uh, clearly the words are different in all four of these. Uh, it, it, which do you think is bringing the meaning across? If you understand our position, God's role, the context of Scripture. Is God, if you bring in the rest of the Scripture, like in Romans, when Paul says, if God is against you, who can be for you? No, he never says that, does he? <laughs> he said, if God is for you, who can be against you? Well, if God is the one punishing you, is he really for you? But if he's disciplining you, he's for you. How did you come about giving that understanding like that? In the process of creating a paraphrase, the importance is not so much on being a language expert, as many lexicons and language databases are readily available, but on understanding the subjects of the nature of the war between Christ and Satan, the great controversy perspective, God's design laws, and his character of love. Without understanding these essential truths, the bias of human law based on the imposed rules and the subsequent distortion of God portraying him as a dictator get artificially woven into the translation and thus misunderstanding is perpetuated. The foremost intention of this paraphrase is to make the concepts of God's design law, his character of love, and his healing truth more accessible to people in the hope that everyone may come into a personal saving relationship with our amazing creator God. So that's the preface to the Psalms paraphrase. And, And the key is, as far as I'm concerned, is understanding as accurately as a human being can how reality works. God's nature, character, how he's designed things to operate. What sin is actually in What the problem is that the plan of salvation is the solution for. And if you have diagnosed the problem wrong, well, the problem is a legal problem. We're in trouble legally. And we, and then your entire conclusion is a legal conclusion. And then you ha- read the scripture through that lens and interpret things in a way to provide legal solutions when it was never the problem. Yes. So that's why they're always focused on behavior modification instead of heart change. Exactly correct. That's right. So the Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers. Anybody want to take a moment and share what impact the Psalms have had on you? Mm. Have you enjoyed the Psalms? Have they been a blessing to you? Uh, Yes. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered that the scripture provides resources to sanctify us in spirit, in soul, and in body? And have you considered these things three parts of our being, all three parts need healing or sanctifying or cleansing or renewal. And the Greek for body is soma, and it's the physical structure, and it's the easiest portion for us to differentiate. We can identify our body much more easily than maybe we can identify what the spirit is or the soul is. And the scripture is filled with many instructions for health of the body. Guidance on hygiene, on diet, on exercise, on rest, all things designed to help keep your body healthy. The Greek word for soul is psyche, from where you get psychiatry and psychology, and, and it corresponds an analogy to the software on a computer, your individuality, your personhood, your unique character, and encompasses the things we believe, learn, and hold to be true, the practices we make of life. But what about the spirit? That's what I want to spend some time on. The Greek is panuma. From where we get pneumonia or pneumatic means, and it's translated into English. This Greek word is translated into English as wind, as spirit, as ghost, as in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, same Greek, panuma, or as breath, as in breath of life, breath. And it corresponds, this word spirit corresponds to our energy. We are energy beings. The first and foremost is the breath of life, the energy of life that comes from God and breathed into man. And he breathed on him in the New Testament. Jesus breathed on them the spirit, remember? But we also develop after having received the spirit or the breath of life, the energy that gives us life. Over the course of our life, we develop our own flavor, if you will, of spirit. 
based on our experiences. And Paul is telling us that our energies need to be sanctified. I want to walk through that. The Bible contains truth for our souls and our minds to provide understanding of who we are, where we came from, why we're here, what is the problem of sin, what is the truth about God, what is the plan of salvation, who is Satan, and how did the rebellion start? The Bible provides this truth to give us a framework of understanding for our belief systems and our mind. But the Bible also contains guidance resources for our spirits. And I believe the Psalms are specifically intended to benefit our spirits But of course, they also benefit our minds. And as we have healthier spirits and minds, we have healthier bodies because we're integrated beings, so we can't really separate them fully. But let's explore this idea of spirit. Our spirit is the part of our being that actually connects with the Holy Spirit, interacts with, aligns with. It's the part of our being where God inspires us, energizes us, motivates, convicts us. It is the healing harmonic, the vitalizing power. The spirit is the wellspring, the energy source, the motivating drive, giving life and fuels our being. It is the affections or the attitudes of the heart where God works via his spirit and causes us to be dissatisfied with sin, to give us longing for something more, to create a conviction and uneasy restlessness when we are departing from him and, 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 and a longing to get back in harmony with him. This is all happening in our spirit. The spirit is our innermost hearts, affections, attitudes, and desires. Think of your closest loved one, a child or a spouse going on a dangerous trip, perhaps into a war zone. And with tears in your eyes as you're hugging them goodbye, as they're shipping off into this war zone, you say to them, I will be with you in spirit. What do you mean? Do you understand that phrase? Have you ever said something like that? Are you saying I'm going to go along with you physically, bodily? Are you saying you're going to have an out-of-body experience and float along with them in a ghost-like apparition over their shoulder? Are you saying that? No, you're not saying that either. Get your mind around this, what this word means. You're saying that you will be with them in heart, in sympathy, in compassion, in attitude, in desire for their good, sharing in their heartaches and hurts and rejoicing in their triumphs, celebrating their successes, that you have your heart's energies oriented toward them for their good. To be with your child in spirit is to be in harmony in your inmost being, resonating and connecting along unseen energy bonds of the quantum universe that God has created. It is the alignment of one's affections and heart and goodwill and intentions for their health and happiness. I said a lot right there. (laughs) I noticed that it's all positive. Can spirit... I had got there yet. Okay. (laughs) Yes, it can. Yeah. And I'm going to get there. When we're filled with God's spirit, we are filled with the presence of God, his life, his energy, his love, his affection, his kindness, his goodness, his grace, his truth, his power. Our spirit is our life energy. God's spirit is the living, divine third person of the Godhead who unites with us in the full power of the Godhead, bringing bringing to us the spirit of the Lord with new attitudes to love rather than the basis or the spirit of fear. Consider this historical quote from one of the founders of the SDA church, describing in 1897 when this was written, what physicists would not discover and describe for at least a half a century. And what physicists now describe as quantum mechanics. But this is what she wrote in 1897. The striking feature of divine operations is the accomplishment of the greatest work that can be done in our world by very simple means. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part, the whole as a wheel within a wheel, working with with entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit to touch invisible cords, and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. You understand, if you study quantum mechanics, that quantum quantum physicists describe that everything in the universe is built out of these infinitesimally small strings, which would be called cords, that vibrate with a certain frequency, And the entire universe is connected through these strings and the energy that flows through these strings determine the matter and mass and and, and activity and essentially everything else is, is derived and connected through these quantum strings. 
And this is out of the book, Ministry of Healing. From age to age, the Lord has been seeking to awaken in the souls of men a sense of their divine brotherhood, unity, connection, sharing the same blood, sharing the same energy, sharing the same quantum strings that, can, that originate in God's heavenly throne as rivers of fire come out from before him and these quantum energy links go out to all living beings and we experience those and we radiate those and they go out to us and we're all connected as brothers. Be co-workers with him while distrust and alienation, be, be co-workers with him. While distrust and alienation are pervading the world, Christ's disciples are to reveal the spirit that reigns in heaven. Speak as he would speak, act as he would act, constantly reveal the sweetness of his character, reveal the wealth, that wealth of love which underlies all his teachings and all his dealings with men. The humblest worker in cooperation with Christ may touch chords whose vibrations shall ring to the ends of the earth and make melody throughout eternal ages. This is the spirit. Your spirit connecting with the spirit of God. And as we make choices on what we worship, by beholding, we become changed. We actually make structural changes in our brain networks that change the frequency vibrations in the energy circuits of our brain. And we align more and more with the vibration energy harmonics of heaven. Or if we wash up the ugly, the vile, the disgusting, the loathsome, the perverse, then we change ourselves to be more ugly, vile, loathsome, and we become more in harmony with the demonic frequency. And thus we are more influenced by one of two spirits. The spirit of love, truth, grace, kindness, compassion, the spirit of heaven, or the spirit of selfishness, fear, control, murder, deceit. So what do you think is being described in this ministry of healing quote? by the phrases, reveal the spirit that reigns in heaven and touch chords whose vibrations shall ring to the ends of the earth and make melody throughout eternal ages. Do you think this is mysticism? Or this is some aspect of reality that our God of reality has constructed into our very beings to connect with the creator of reality. Quantum entanglement. Exactly what this is. This is quantums. This is quantum physics from the God who created all things. When our spirit is renewed in the purity of heavenly love and truth, we get new desires, new attitudes, new longings. Have you experienced that? When you give your, did you get new desires that weren't there before? Mm-hmm. New longings, yeah. new motives. This is your spirit self responding to the energy of God, the purity of heaven. And, and then we must choose when we receive these new desires and longings from the Holy Spirit, We must choose to apply these new attitudes, desires, this new energy, this new motivation that is resonating in our being. We must choose to apply them to our souls, our minds, our beliefs, our choices. We have to choose to say no to the lie and yes to the truth. No to the exploitation, yes to the grace and forgiveness and mercy. And as we because we have the desire being motivated and the conviction coming in our inner being from the spirit working in us, and then we have the freedom to choose it, yes or no. When we choose yes, then we're empowered through that same spirit to follow through with the choice. Don't you think the vibrations are a part of that? Yes. Because things that resonated with you, that entertained you, that you were drawn to, also change. You don't vibrate on that same... That's exactly right. And this is, this is how we are being sanctified and healed in spirit and soul and in body. And the body actually heals. And Jesus said um, that, the, that the spirit is life. The body means nothing. 2 Timothy 1.7 Paul says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Our spirit is our life energy. And if we foster a, now here we go, negative spirit, allowing ourselves to be filled with hate, resentment, fear, fear of rejection, fear of financial loss, fear of failure, fear of condemnation by God and others, the negative spirit with its fear, guilt, shame, doubt, worry, corrupts our minds. 
And the negative spirit leads to the formation of negative beliefs about ourselves. I'm no good. Everything I do, I mess up. I don't deserve love. I have ruined everything. Everyone hates me. I've sinned beyond forgiveness. I deserve punishment. Those people are racist. The church doesn't care. And on the list goes. The negative spirit corrupts our thinking, infecting our beliefs, which impacts our life choices and relationships, increasing our stress and undermining our health as our bodies respond to the increased stress with increased inflammation and wearing out the life force. Salvation starts with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves upon our spirit to instill a desire for love, a desire for holiness, a longing for something better, for purity, for peace, for acceptance, for goodness, for reconciliation, a longing, uh, an uneasiness with the, with the sicknesses of this world, with the fear, with the selfishness. It convicts us of areas that we're out of harmony with God and what is good and what is healthy. And when we are convicted in our spirits, then we must choose. How do we respond to the movements of the spirit on our spirit? Do we deny? Do we distort? Do we avoid the truth? Do we double down on the sin? Do we justify a rebellion? Do we numb ourselves with substances? Do we find others who will endorse and support our destructive lifestyles and ways of living and tell us we're really good even though our spirit is convicted that we're not? Or do we embrace the leading of the Holy Spirit and choose to apply to ourselves the new desires and the new motives coming from the Holy Spirit into our souls, into our minds, into our beliefs, into our perspectives, and into our practices? Do we choose to love and forgive? Or do we choose to resent and hate? If we choose to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, working upon our spirit, then we experience rebirth, renewal, healing, recreation, restoration from the damage and the, and the, of the infection of fear and selfishness and sin. And our salvation ends, it's the completion of the salvation process ends when this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption. But that only happens for those who have been sanctified in spirit and in soul. Then they get a sanctified and glorified body. And this cleansing of the spirit and soul is called the seal of God. And what is the seal of God? Maybe you've heard this description. This comes out of Last Day Events 219, or the SDA Bible Commentary, page uh, 1161. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has already begun. Intellectually would be healing our minds, our souls, our beliefs, our understandings, And spiritually is healing our spirits, our inner affections, our longings, our desires, so that we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. Our desires, our longings, the motives, the energies within us vibrate along the harmonics of heaven instead of the harmonics of this world. And we're settled and nothing can shake us from it. That's what this healing is. Yes. I found that one of the most difficult prayers you can pray but is always answered, is show me who I really am and give me the courage to turn to you when you do. Because he will always answer that prayer and it's always a horrible process because you are open to the idea that God sees you differently than you see yourself. And that's important information to know so that you can embrace following his path to you or no, I see what you're saying there, Linda, and I think you're exactly right. In many times and circumstances, they're exactly right, but there are certain circumstances when that may not be as bad. And the metaphor I like to use is, and I've had patients who have gone to the doctor knowing something was wrong, and they wanted to be examined, and they wanted yeah. to find out what it was. And when the doctor told them, even a cancer diagnosis, they had tears of relief and joy because they'd been suffering, for something and nobody could find out what it was. Now they know. Now we can address it. And so there's a relief yeah. that can come sometimes. But others know something is wrong and they and go to the, and they won't go, they won't go. They won't, they're afraid to go. They're afraid of what's going to find out. And it scares them to find out what's there and they won't go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What might make the difference? Maybe believing whether the doctor can actually cure the problem. Mm-hmm. 
maybe uh, if you go to the doctor, but, but, but it's not a doctor you're going to, you're, you're going to the judge. You're, you're, you know you've been doing wrong and, and you're going into a tribunal to be examined yeah. rather than into an exam room by a physician to be examined. Uh, the stressors are different. Mm-hmm. If we have a God construct that if he finds something wrong, he's required by law to punish. Yes. I see him also as so merciful because he knows how much we can handle and he gently will help us move toward greater um, understanding and, and that's exactly right. The kindness of God so leads kind us. <clears throat> so, with all this in mind, I want to say I believe the Psalms are particularly designed to cleanse our spirits, mm-hmm. to invigorate us and inspire us with truths that bring us into awe, into admiration, into amazement to our incredible God, and win us to trust and look beyond the fears to to place our confidence in our Creator, Redeemer, Protector, and Savior. That's what I think the Psalms. And of course, they have truths for our minds, too, and wisdom for our bodies, but I think it's particularly designed for our spirits. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, in the Hebrew, the title of the book Psalms, Praises, uh, reflects its main purpose, that is, the praise of God. The English title, Book of Psalms, is derived from the Greek Psalm Oi, uh, found in the Septuagint in early 2nd and 3rd century B.C. Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Do you see a connection between praising God and the attitude of your heart? Have you noticed when maybe you're discouraged but you start to praise God that it lifts your spirit? Has a sanctifying effect. Bottom section says, though we of course do not worship God in an earthly sanctuary like the temple, How can we use the Psalms in our own worship, whether it is private or in a corporate setting? And uh, I thought maybe this would be helpful because these questions come up a lot. What was the purpose of the earthly sanctuary? What was its purpose? Teaching tool. Teach the gospel. Teaching tool. Teaching tool. Teach the gospel. Was there anything in the Old Testament sanctuary service it's rituals, ceremony, sacrifice that sa- sacrifices in the services of that theater. I call it a theater. The theater with a cool stage, neat props, cool costumes, and a script we call scripture. That's what it was. Was there anything in that system that had the ability to cleanse from sin? No. No. No, and the Bible's very clear. The Hebrews 9, 9, 10, and 10, 3, and 4. It says, the gift and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Nothing in that thing saved from sin. Nothing. And then if you, even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, 11, 16, and 17, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In Hosea 6, 6. What God really wants. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I'd rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. This is all through scripture. The entire system was this way. So it's theater, object lesson, teaching platform to teach reality. And what is the reality then that that platform, that theater, that object lesson was to teach? What it, how would you say... That sanctuary system was to teach what? How to be saved. How to be saved? The plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. I'd certainly agree with that. The difference between individual and and corporate or collective realization. The reality that we are the temple that needs cleansing. Mm -hmm. All of these are true. And and let's see what what this commentary says and see if you agree with this commentary. This is a commentary called The Desire of Ages, uh, page 161. See if you agree with this description of what that is designed to teach. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple erected for the abode of the divine presence was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. What's an object lesson? 
Is the object lesson reality or does it illustrate reality? Is the object lesson required for salvation? Is the reality to which the object lesson points required? Get your mind around that, okay? The reality is, is what's needed for salvation. The object lesson is a tool to help us comprehend, engage with, and connect to the reality, okay? So first th- point to note, the Old Testament, this author, this commentary, that Old Testament sanctuary was object lesson, meaning it's not actually required for salvation. It's a tool to help you see what is required for salvation. Let's go on to see what this commentary says. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. What kind of temple is this? You, 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 uh, you're a temple. What kind of temple is that? A living temple. A living temple. Is the temple that is suggested here that is composed of living beings one built by human hands or by God? By God. God. Yeah, remember that. Uh, the, the temple that Jesus is cleansing is not built by human hands. This temple that is, being, is not built by human hands. And is the temple that Jesus is uh, working on to be cleansed, is it built by human hands? No, it's not. Before we look at more evidence, just consider reality. If God wants to eliminate sin from his universe... Where is the place the cleansing needs to happen? Heart. Can you eliminate sin from the universe by cleansing a library in heaven? Can you do it by erasing facts of history from record books in heaven? Or what happens if you cleanse hearts and minds from sin? So if the cleansing of the sanctuary is teaching us something about the plan of salvation, shouldn't it be connecting our minds to reality? the reality of where sin happens and where it needs to be removed. Shouldn't this sanctuary service, if that's teaching reality, shouldn't it be teaching us where the sin happens and where he's removing it from? Well, this author's saying that it was supposed to teach that you are a temple. This, this alone, before we even go to the rest of this quote in other places, should cause many Seventh-day Adventists to rethink their assumptions and reevaluate the evidence regarding the cleansing of the sanctuary message. I was just thinking that the object lesson seems more complicated than the real lesson. But maybe the point is is that we have misconstrued um, the object lesson so that it is more complicated. The complications come from the misapplication. Yeah. Yeah. You know the quote, because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. What is God's purpose for humanity? In the creation of Adam and Eve, God had a purpose. Let us make man in Satan's image. We are to be image bearers of our creator. But because of the fall, because of the rebellion, humankind became image bearers of fear, selfishness, exploitation, abuse, and sin. We became image bearers of the, of the, of the rebel. And by the incarnation of the Son of God, humanity accomplishes God's purpose. In Jesus, human being, Jesus, the image of God is restored. In the species, human, in the person of human, in the person of Jesus. God dwells, and so she goes on to say, God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. What does this mean? If the heart of a sinner is to become again the temple where God dwells, would that require that some type of cleansing work is to be done in the heart of the sinner? God designed that the temple at Jerusalem, God's intention, his plan for the object lesson. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not comprehended, had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with such pride. How about Christians today? How about Seventh-day Adventist Christians today? Have we understood the significance of that object lesson? Or have we simply trans 
transposed that building into a bigger version in heaven and teach the same literalism that they thought. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. How about us? Are we yielding ourselves to be holy temples where the spirit dwells? The courts of the temple at Jerusalem filled with the tumult of unholy traffic represent all too truly the temple of the heart defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. Where is the cleansing taking place here? In a judicial process in heaven, as books are being reviewed by thousands of angels and there's a tribunal being held. Is that what this is describing? Notice now what the author cites next. This is crucial. After describing his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, notice what she quotes. This is a quoting scripture now, Malachi 3, 1 through 3, quoted in Desire of Ages. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who, will, who shall stand when he appears? For he will be like a re finer's fire and launderers or fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the record books in heaven. No. He shall purify the, Le- the sons of Levi or the Levites and purge them as gold and silver. And in the symbolism, the Levites represent the priesthood of believers. This is the priesthood of believers. Now what's described as in this commentary, what's described as, as being the literal temple that Jesus is cleansing? We, the living beings that have been infected with sin are being cleansed by the work of Jesus. Now, what is interesting is that this author, who is a central figure in the Seventh-day Adventist church developing its doctrine of the investigative judgment, would you agree that Ellen White is the central figure in developing the doctrine of the investigative judgment? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. And the cleansing of the sanctuary doctrine, she's essential in that, describes the cleansing of the sanctuary as the cleansing of the people and ends the description with the application of Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Do you see she applies Malachi 3, 1 through 3 to the cleansing of the people? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. And she does not apply Malachi 3, 1 through 3 to a tribunal judicial system in heaven, does she? No. Notice then what she says in Greek Controversy. Page 426. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is presented in Daniel 7.13. And the coming to the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. Wow. So if you agree with the author that the verses in Malachi describe Jesus cleansing the spirit temple to prepare people to meet Jesus, then do you also agree that the same author asserts that this cleansing of the people is the same event that Daniel 8.14 foretold. Which means that the cleansing of the sanctuary, which began in 1844, is not a cleansing of a building or record books in heaven. And it never was. It's the cleansing that Malachi describes. The cleansing of the Levites, the priesthood of believers. Is the author correct and the cleansing is the cleansing of people and not books and courtrooms in heaven? Why? Yes, she is. But why? Why is that correct? Because God is the God of reality, not make-believe. And the human-like court systems are made up based on made-up laws and made-up rules and made-up judicial findings and made-up inflicted punishments. They're fantasy made-up non-reality. They're artificial in the same way that baseball has its rules. And you can be caught out if you break the rules, but those rules are all just made up. 90 feet from home plate to first base. It could have been 30 feet. It could have been 100 feet. It's all just arbitrary, made up. All human systems of justice are just made up. God is the creator of reality. And God operates upon reality. And he is healing his creation itself, including human beings who are part of his creation. In order, and in order to do that, we have to be cleansed. His creatures from the infection of sin, not erasing facts from books in heaven. Thus the cleansing that occurs before Jesus comes again 
which is prophesied in a variety of places and symbolically taught in the sanctuary message, is the removing from us of our fear, our guilt, our shame, our distrust, our selfishness, and all elements of the old selves and renewing us to be like gold, the gold of Christ's likeness, settling and sealing us so that we cannot be shaken out of it. This is not a legal process happening in courtrooms. It is an actual process happening in hearts and minds. And in fact, the legal descriptions are obstacles, barriers that prevent people from experiencing what Jesus wants to give them. Now, someone may ask, well, then what's the significance of 1844? Some might say, well, wasn't Jesus working to do this for every repentant sinner through all history? I mean, didn't Enoch, Moses, Elijah already experience this type of healing and they're already in heaven? So what's the point of 1844? And the answer? The symbolism of the sanctuary theater answers, answers this as well. God has been working through... Jesus to heal every human mind throughout all history, including Enoch, Moses, Elijah. And they did experience all of this. And this is represented in the sanctuary in the daily sacrifices. The daily sacrifices brought by the sinners represent the individual healing of individual sinners throughout time. The difficulty people have when understanding these symbols and symbolisms is they mix them. They mix them. They mix something that represents one thing with something that represents another thing because they look similar. Classic example, you get this all the time in people who mix first death and second death. All the time. And people ask questions about somewhere in the Old Testament, God using his power to put people to sleep, first death experience, and then saying, therefore, in the end, God will use his power to kill people for sin and punish them for sin. First death is not the punishment for sin. Daniel died that death. You're going to sleep in the grave. The righteous die that death. That is not punishment for sin. But people mix those two and then draw all the kinds of false conclusions when you mix things that look similar but are not the same. And in the Old Testament sanctuary, there were different types of sacrifices. There were the daily sacrifices and then there were the feast day sacrifices. And when we talk about the 1844, we're not talking about an individual sinner bringing a sacrifice for his personal cleansing. We're talking about the Day of Atonement, which is an annual feast day. And the annual feast days were not intended to teach individual cleansing from sin. The annual feast days were designed to teach the actual plan of salvation from the fall of Adam all the way till we live with God and earth made new. And it happened in seven feasts over the year that repeated year after year after year. And it starts with the first feast of the year, Passover. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God passed over their sin. He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, as it says in Romans 3.25, and promised right there that the seed of the woman was coming to crush the serpent's head. The Passover lamb was promised right there. And Jesus came and died on Passover Friday to fulfill the Passover significance, that he was going to take upon himself this terminal condition and cure it, overcome it, destroy the infection of sin, and restore the life-giving principle of God into the species human and become the second head of humanity. The first Lesson we learn, when Adam sinned, God passed over and did not bring to bear upon them what their actions would have caused, but held in grace, in suspension, the full weight of that while Messiah comes. Next was unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread symbolic of? What's leaven symbolic of? So what's unleavened bread? Sin-free bread. Sin-free bread. And what are they supposed to do with the unleavened bread? <laughs> Eat it. And that became, a, uh, in the sanctuary service, became sim- also symbolized by the flesh of the animal, of the sacrificial animal. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the unleavened bread uh, or the bread of the loaves, the 12 loaves that were in the sanctuary, all this, all this stuff represents Jesus, the word made flesh. And to partake of the unleavened bread, these are the truth that Jesus brings that was beginning to be poured out immediately after the fall that all the sinners must ingest and internalize and feed upon, but it was given with bitter herbs. Why was the truth given with bitter herbs? Because after the fall, all the truth that comes to us is coming to us in the bitterness of our sin state. And life is bitter now, even when the truth comes. 
There's bitterness in it. The truth. If you're married to sin, you love sin. Truth is bitter. Truth isn't bitter. The sin is what's bitter. But it's what, what's that little meme I saw recently? If the truth makes you uncomfortable, don't hate the truth. Ma- hate the lie that made you comfortable. Okay. So so yes, there is there is a discomfort when the truth applies because we have become comfortable in the sin or enjoyed the sin. And there's a certain pain and, and grieving that happens as the truth works its way through us. So there's truth in that. But ultimately, the outcome is healing and restoration. Correct. So the bitterness is actually not in the truth. It's in the sin that we were aligning with. Fair point. Then the uh, next was the wave sheaf. This also symbolic of Christ, who is the sinless first fruit, who died and rose again, and, and from him... All the, all the other resurrected saints come forth again into noodles of life. And then the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. This is the, the uh, truth takes root in hearts and spreads out and a harvest has is, 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 is come. And then the Feast of Trumpets is the next one. And that is the message for the end time. Announcing that uh, to get ready, the bridegroom is soon to come. Uh, this, this was the great awakening in the 19th century, by the way, when that happened. You know when Pentecost happened in the first century and in the outpouring of the Spirit. The atonement is the time immediately before the second coming of Christ when the groom puts the final cleansing touches upon his bride, um, wedding her to himself on a global, not individual, scale. The whole world is settling into one or two and all the saints will be united to Christ and the world is settled and prepared for his... And then the tabernacles which after the atonement, the tabernacles are when the earth is made new and we live with God and earth made new. And that's what's symbolized by the, the little green, you know, f- booths that they made for themselves and would spend out in the nature. So what's the point of 1844 then? It is a prophecy given by God to Daniel. God looking down the corridors of time. Daniel asks a question, when will all this stuff be? When will our people be set free? When will all this going to happen? And God says there are 70 prophetic weeks allotted to your people, the Jews, to fulfill their mission to be the avenue through whom Messiah would come. In the middle of that last week, Messiah will come. He will put an end to all the sacrificial system. He will, he will provide what's necessary for sin. But after the Messiah comes and completes his mission, if you read the prophecy, there's an antagonistic power, a little horn power that's going to rise up and oppose all that Messiah has done. He's going to persecute the saints and his war against the saints until judgment is given to the saints. This same little horn power is described in Thessalonians as the man of sin. The man of sin is going to come, and Paul says he's going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And if you understand all these texts together, how do we wage war? We don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? every argument and pretension that sets us up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So the prophecy, Jesus is going to come. He's going to provide what's necessary for salvation. There's going to be a counterattack by the man of sin. The man of sin is going to corrupt and, and teach falsehoods about all that Christ has done so successfully, warring against the saints, that he's going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple do you think that is? The spirit temple that needs cleansing by getting us to believe the lie that God's law works like Roman law, that we begin worshiping a Roman God who uses power to punish sinners for for rule-breaking. And this is the entire tenor of Christianity. We're worshiping a Romanized version of a Roman God who makes up rules, a source of pain, suffering, and death. And God, looking down the corridors of time, said to his friend Daniel, it will be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered that my people can make a right judgment about me. Make a right judgment. And this is why he's warring against the saints in Daniel 9 until judgment was given to the saints. Not judicial process ruling in their favor until they are empowered to make a right judgment. And that's the three angels' message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. It's a time in history that we stop judging him to be like Baal and start worshiping him as the creator who made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and all that in him is. This is the message for this time. And this is why 1844 is significant because it was the time in history when the... The Bible had been translated in enough languages when a special outpouring of an end-time Advent message came, when the three angels' messages came to light, when the right understanding of Daniel and Revelation came to light, that we could finally see God as creator and worship him as the creator and stop worshiping him as an imperial dictator, which means we throw off the Roman law lie and, and recover the truth that his laws are design laws. 
questions about any of that. Well, it just became clear to me that that is why they're going to believe, because of the imperial law uh, belief, that that's why they're going to believe Satan. That's exactly right. And when he comes back, and he comes back with miracles and power and, and apparent authority and sovereignty, and with a law that says, I love you, and he says, I love you, and I only want your love, I died for you, but if you won't obey me, I'm going to give you this opportunity, one more chance of grace, but if you won't obey me, law and justice require that I punish you. Now, I don't want to kill you, so what I'm going to do first is I'm going to restrict your buying and selling. And if you won't become under the discipline of not buying and selling, then what I'll do is I'll imprison you. But the whole goal is, is just to redeem you, get to repent and worship me who loves you and died for you. And if you won't repent, then ultimately justice requires that I kill you because sin must be punished. Do you understand this is exactly what the Seventh-day Adventist church is teaching this lie today? Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm, it's not my notes. I'm going to step off onto a little aside. Um, last week's class had a guest watching us online and he posted a... Hey, on our Facebook feed, he posted a link to his, his article published in the review about law, love, and, um, freedom. and freedom. Yeah, something like that. And if you read the article, in there twice in this article, he makes, the, he makes the case that, in fact, God's law requires God to use power to kill, and therefore, God killed Jesus. Twice he says it. So that he doesn't need to kill us. So, yes, yeah, so God killed Jesus so that he wouldn't be required to kill us. That was in the review? In the review, December 8, 2023. That doesn't even make sense. Okay, but that's, that's what you are required. This is what I keep telling you. If you believe the law, God's law, works like human law, a system of rules, then you are required to believe that the lawmaker must use power to enforce that law. And if the minimum punishment is death, then you're required to believe that God is the source of death that he inflicts upon sinners, which means that if he doesn't inflict it upon us, he had to inflict it upon somebody. Therefore, he is the source of death who killed his own son. And this is the corruption. This is why the three angels' message isn't gone to the world. This is why the church is still sleeping and languishing. This it is disgusting. But the root of it, and I'm not judging their hearts. Yeah. They, they say this because I think they want to present the God that they believe in, but the God they believe in is not the God yeah. that Jesus revealed. Amen. Amen. It is not. Amen. This, is, this is, remember who, 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 did anybody read my blog this week? Yes. Who Baal was. Baal was the son of El as an Elohim, El Shaddai, who is the Lord of the earth, the God of thunder, the God of weather, the God of creation, the God who brought harvest, the God who fought against the great Leviathan, the serpent, who fought against Moat, the God of death. And in his battle with Moat, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the earth. Would you ever worship a God who was the creator, the son of the father God, who, who would fight against the great serpent, who would fight against death, who would die and rise again? Would you ever worship a God like that? Mm-hmm. Sounds very similar. Baal worship was so seductive, it was so close to the truth. The one thing that was the lie, Baal required offerings and sacrifices to be presented to him to earn or pay for or get the blessing. And if you didn't give the sacrifice, he would require to punish. This is Baal worship. Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to the Christians who worship a God who must have the blood of a human sacrifice paid to him so he won't kill us. And thus the Adventist church today, to a great degree, is teaching from its resources Baal worship. And this is why Malachi, we just read about Malachi, also said before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. And what did Elijah do? He called attention. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. And the message that we're calling people today is to make a decision. If God is like a Roman dictator who makes up rules, who's a source of death, and will kill you if you don't do what he says and obey his rules and ultimately love him, and if you don't love him, he'll kill you, then worship him. But if God is like Jesus revealed him to be, the, the creator, the sustainer, the lover who will give you complete freedom. And if you leave him, you take yourself out of harmony with the very protocols of life and you will die a terrible death, but he will cry over you and he will never use power to hurt you. And in fact, he has been using his power ever since sin to hold at bay what sin does to us. He's been interceding and restraining and, and his wrath is the cessation of his power. He stops using his power that has been protecting all of us and we reap a horrible death. If that is who God is, then worship him and give glory to him for the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. 
I have, yes. They, they misunderstand what the sacrifice is from the beginning. That's right. Because they, they read the scripture, as we talked about earlier, with a bias that God's law works like human law. So they read the scripture and they put all this penal legal stuff into both the translations and their understandings. And it's all a lie. Well, in the lesson, I, I have several psalms that I go through in some detail. Um, and, uh, and I actually compare some of the psalms to um, some of, some, the remedy to some of the other versions. It's all in the notes today, but we're out of time. So I'm going to go and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are not like Satan has made you out to be. That you are the creator who's created your universe to operate in harmony with your character, nature of truth, love, and freedom. And that rather than leaving humanity to suffer and die after Adam broke away, that you came and took up this terrible terminal condition and overcame destroying the infection that causes death and restoring in humanity the image of God, the law of God, the nature of God, the character of God. And we ask now that your spirit be poured out to align and come into our spirit to give us new desires, new motives, new harmonics, new energies that we can identify with and live out those principles in our life that lighten this world that you might come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.